It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. I'm Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my <laughs> co-host Kira Rundle. Hey Hi, Matt, good to be here. We have electricity blackout concerns during heatwaves over summer, as you're all very familiar, (laughs) and Renew Economy recently reported on Matt Canavan's concerns about our fragile electricity system, in quotation marks. And yet the federal government's solution, as always, is more coal-fired generation. However, understanding about how renewable energy can be deployed for a reliable and affordable electricity system is increasing, with dispatchability being a really important component of this. Dr. Keith Lovegrove joins us today. He will discuss an Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA, study that he completed last year titled Comparison of Dispatchable Renewable Energy Options, Technologies for an Orderly Transition. Keith is the head of Solar Thermal for the ITP Energised Group and managing director of the group company ITP Thermal Proprietary Limited. He has 30 years of experience in renewable energy, combined with 15 years of teaching experience in undergraduate and postgraduate courses in energy systems and systems engineering. He was previously the leader of the Solar Thermal Group at the Australian National University. Hi, Keith. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Kira. Um, Keith, what was the objective of the ARENA study? Well, I think your introduction sort of put the context pretty well. Here we are in a in a world with increasing amounts of PV and wind and, and a debate going on that's not particularly rational and talk of blackouts here and there. And the fact is that to run an electricity system in a stable way, you do need some percentage, a significant percentage of the generation to be what we call dispatchable, meaning that you can turn it on and off at will. And what are the options for that? So ARENA is the Renewable Energy Agency, obviously, and uh, we wanted to have a look at what the renewable energy options are, because obviously some people argue only coal can do it, but in fact that's not our conclusion. So could you tell us a little bit about what qualities make for good dispatchability? in a technology other than coal? First of all, to sort of understand this whole debate, maybe it's worth just quickly introducing a few terms. That would be So <laughs> dispatchable, I, I think we've sort of got our handle on it. It's like getting in your good old car and pressing the accelerator and expecting a response. So things that can be turned on and off on demand are dispatchable, but some are faster at it than others and and. And so, for example, in the old world, a coal-fired power station was dispatchable, but only in a very sort of slow way. And we often sort of relied on gas-fired generators to speed up and slow down a bit faster, a bit more flexibly as demand changed. So that that would be the, 
sort of distinction, a battery system or a, or a pumped hydro system or a concentrating solar thermal power plant or a bioenergy-fired power plant, these are all the options we looked at that are renewable and dispatchable. But then on top of that, we also need to think about, there's a whole lot of technical terms getting kicked around, things like frequency control and synchronous generation and inertia and so forth. And these are sort of subtle technical concepts, but they are things that the system needs. But it turns out that our renewable dispatchables have those in just a very similar way to the conventional fossil generation. You've mentioned some of the technologies that you looked at. Would you like to just go through them one by one, Keith? Sure, sure. So what we did was not look at every conceivable thing that anyone's ever invented, (laughs) but we took what we thought was a comprehensive set of representative technologies that are already somewhere in the world installed at utility scale. So things that if Australia wants them, we can start building Mm -hmm. them tomorrow. So what, what did it mean? Well, first of all, we, we have our what's called variable generation, the wind or the PV. If that's coupled with electricity storage, then the combination becomes dispatchable. So we certainly looked at that. So we had PV or wind coupled with network-connected batteries or pumped hydro storage or an interesting one that's become very topical, hydrogen-based storage. Mm-hmm. So those were our PV and wind options. Then we also looked at bioenergy options, and the two established ones that we looked at were anaerobic digestion of wet waste coupled with a gas engine generator or a combustion boiler using um, dry biomass like bagasse from Queensland sugarcane, that sort of thing, driving a conventional steam turbine. So two very well-established bioenergy technologies Then we looked at concentrating solar power with built-in thermal storage using molten salt. And finally, we added geothermal generation, which was very, very popular as a concept in Australia a few years ago, but has rather gone off the radar screen (laughs) of late. So that's not every technology that anyone's proposed. It's simply a representative mix of things that you can already do at the 10 to 100 megawatt plus scale today. Okay, so you looked at all of these different technologies and then, so they obviously work in different ways and you get different capacity of energy storage depending on which technology you choose. So how did you compare them and then ultimately come up with um, your recommendations? Well, what we've done is trawled the literature and talked to stakeholders, had some confidential briefings and managed to put together a good estimate of the installed cost of each technology. Now, we've done it in a rather more detailed way than a lot of studies do because what we did was we've broken our conceptual systems down into subsystems so as to get a knowledge of the installed cost of each subsystem. So let let me give you an an example of that. Let's just go to PV plus batteries. Mm -hmm. Rather than just say PV plus batteries costs X, what we've said is, First of all, we'll work out what our large PV farm costs per megawatt. Then we'll work out what the battery system costs, but we divide that up into two. We work out how much it costs 
per megawatt hour of stored energy because that will contribute to the cost. But then we have another subsystem. The, a battery is a, is a system that also takes the stored energy and then converts it back to grid electricity. So that ha- whole subsystem of power electronics also has a cost, mm. but that cost is best expressed per megawatt of output. Mm. So we've got these ultimately three subsystems, sometimes four in case of the other technologies, which you add together to get a total cost for the system. But the advantage of keeping it at a subsystem level like that is that then we can carefully look at, well, what if we design these with different amounts of storage? So we look at the different technology combinations and say, well, what if we had one hour of storage or six hours of storage Mm -hmm. or 24 hours of storage? And we can use the cost model to sort of stitch it together any way we want. So it's much more valuable data for comparing a range of options. Absolutely. And then what we do with the installed cost, which isn't really such an important uh, number to judge a technology by, it's rather what's called the levelised cost of energy, which is to say, look at how much energy it produces over a year and then pay off the installed cost, also pay for the operations and maintenance cost, and then work out the sort of break-even cost of the energy provided. And if you like, that's analogous to what the consumer pays when mm-hmm. they pay cents per kilowatt hour for electricity. So, you know, for this new generation system, what's its break-even price? That's levelised cost of energy. So we've then been able to analyse that for all the technology combinations, but then look at look at them Apples with apples, look at one-hour mm-hmm. systems, look at two-hour systems, six-hour, 24-hour, so forth. So you're looking, you had a technical threshold by choosing which technologies you're working with and then yep. you're looking on a cost basis to see what's the most cost-effective dispatchables to use in our system. A- absolutely. Okay. But, but the last phrase you said there, what's the most cost-effective, one of our key findings is there is no answer to that. Okay. Um, we're actually spoilt for choice, <laughs> and what we actually need is a mixture of them. Okay. Um, and it's actually, it's impossible to pick a single winner, and, and mm-hmm. nobody should, least of all government. So you, you said that one of the factors that play into that is the time scale that you're trying to provide dispatchable energy over. Yes. Can, can you go into that in a bit more detail? Because I, I think that was a really interesting aspect of the report. All right, so let's think about why timescales are important. If we've got an awful lot of PV and wind being installed in the system, which we do, what's actually going to happen is that every once in a while a cloud will come over or come the end of the day, all the PV will actually drop off quite rapidly. So something has to happen to sort of fill in the gaps. Mm. Now, if you think about intermittent sort of variations in the wind or clouds coming and going, what you really need to do there is smooth things out a bit. So you want something that can respond very, very quickly, step in, fill the gap, smooth it over for, you know, half an hour, an hour or something. Well, a battery is particularly good for that because a battery system is quite cheap per megawatt, although it's... A very expensive technology 
per megawatt hour of stored energy. So right. it's actually very good mm-hmm. for the short time scales. But then, then let's think a bit further. We, we know that our electricity demand tends to be very high late afternoon, early evening. So you've actually got a sort of almost a six-hour or so window there where we're always going to have a lot of demand. So it seems like it'd be good to look for technologies that are quite good over that sort of period. And finally, we do have to keep ourselves going 24 hours a day, so there'll be need for some things that that can sort of chug away for maybe 12 hours a day. When the sun's Um, not shining. Yes, when the sun's not shining. And then going a step further, um, people will rightly occasionally raise the point that, well, what if we get a whole week with no sun and no wind? It certainly happens once or twice a year. Um, So we need to think about some storage systems that can just sort of sit in the background and wait for those occasions. And it's fascinating to see in the report how the cost-effectiveness of you know, various options varies so significantly across those different timeframes that you've elaborated mm. on there, Keith. That's absolutely right. Well, perhaps I could just give one of the headline findings, which is to say we've confirmed the generally held belief that variable renewable electricity, that's wind or PV, is now the cheapest dollars per megawatt hour new build electricity that you can have. It is the cheapest, (laughs) but it's variable. It's not always there. Yes. So we need some of this dispatchable stuff. So what we found is that we've developed a rule of thumb. We found all these different options together. There's always something that falls between one and a half to two times the cost of the variable electricity. So it's it's not free, it's not it's not cheaper than the variable stuff. You, but it's you're, only you're paying for that bit, luxury of having access to it at any time. It, that's exactly right. And it's you know, it's not that much more expensive. And this sort of rule of thumb of one and a half to two times, interestingly, ends up applying across all of the time scales but each time scale you choose, you'll find the technologies that do best there are different to the, mm-hmm. the ones in the other time scale. So as I said, the battery is very good for very short things, um, but things like concentrating solar and pumped hydro, they really come into their own in the 6 to 12 to 24 hour time of, type of periods. And even if you are going, say, one and a half to two times over the cost of the variable renewable energy generation, are we still looking at electricity prices comparable with those today? Right. So if you think about that one and a half to two times the cost of variable, um, but basically what we're saying is the levelized cost, which would translate to the mm-hmm. wholesale generation cost at that the numbers that we did, which were 2017 costs, would come in at about $120 a megawatt hour, roughly speaking. Now, all the estimates for new build gas turbine generation are around about that or more. So it looks as if the dispatchable renewables are no more expensive or even slightly cheaper than what we've traditionally used Mm. for our dispatchable, flexible technology, meaning gas open cycle systems. So quite affordable in that way. 
Listeners, if you've just joined us, we're speaking with Keith Lovegrove about dispatchable renewable energy options. So, Keith, I think I know what your answer is going to be to this, but in your view, is it possible to provide the required system dispatchability with current technology for a fully renewable electricity system? Well, absolutely, because we're at pains, as I said before, to only look at representative technologies that have already been built at the tens to hundreds of megawatt scale somewhere in the world. Now, one of the interesting things is when you say, is it possible? So it's absolutely technically possible. <laughs> um, is it politically and socially possible? And, we, and economically? We and economically. Well, it's certainly economically possible, although one has to consider that the renewable technologies are higher capital cost but mm-hmm. zero fuel cost. Mm-hmm. So it always leaves society with the issue of, well, we have to raise the capital. But actually what we've seen with the renewable energy target in Australia is that once a market mechanism and a market pull is established, that capital is actually not in short supplies. It's just about making sure that the people providing the capital get a reasonable return on the capital. Mm. One of the things to consider and we did look at this briefly, is you can't just build this stuff overnight. Some of these technologies, if they're done at a serious scale, it's a sort of two- or three-year construction period to think about, Mm -hmm. which means, as a society, we need to do a bit of planning. We can't just sort of wait till there's a shortfall and then complain when the lights go out. It's got to be planned for. And I think AEMO is starting to do a reasonable job of that sort of thing but to put the planning idea of it in context what we know is that we've got a whole bunch of coal-fired power stations that are actually reaching the end of their lives so about by 2040 in the normal course of events something like 15 gigawatts of power station is just going to be retired Mm. so really in, in very simple terms what we say is well we really ought to be getting ready to replace those with something else that's dispatchable on about that time frame. Can, can that be done? Mm-hmm. Well, actually it can, because if we would start out building this, these dispatchable technologies in some combination, then about 25% per annum compound growth in the amount of the stuff would just sort of gently build up an industry, grow the expertise, get the supply chains in place, allow for the construction times, and hey presto, we would have replaced that 15 gigawatts in a nice smooth way by Mm -hmm. 2040. What you can't do is talk about it for another 10 (laughs) years and then try to do it overnight in 2035. Absolutely not. So what sort of proportion of dispatchable electricity would you see, you know, over that time frame? Well, so the question is, if we get to 100% renewable electricity, (laughs) which I think most of the listeners of this program would probably accept is the inevitable place we have to get to. Albeit perhaps a bit quicker than than what you're saying. (laughs) Well, even, yes, ideally so. So how much dispatchable stuff do you need in a 100% renewable mix? That we did not study in this particular analysis but other people have studied that and it's actually a very topical point that's getting a lot of attention but 
you could say, you know, roughly speaking, around 40% or 30%, mm, something okay. like yeah, that. That's interesting to have an order of magnitude. Thank yes. you. So, look, we've got a, another show coming up in a few weeks about demand response, looking at ways that consumers can reduce or shift their energy use during peak demand times. So I guess demand response is kind of a form of dispatchable consumption rather than dispatchable production. Was this a strategy that was considered in the study? Yes, we have looked at that briefly. And what works particularly well is in the very infrequent events, very, very high load periods in very hot weather where suddenly there's a shortfall, demand response is particularly good for that because if AEMO's contracted a whole bunch of aggregated people to just agree to cut their demand at a critical time, that's actually by far the cheapest thing to do in those times. You don't mm-hmm. What you don't want to do is pay for a generator that simply sits there for use one hour a year. That's just a silly thing to do. But then in a, in a sort of market sense, if we, if we move more to consumers actually seeing that really the, the cost and the value of electricity varies continuously during the day, depending on what's available and what the demand is, if that's fed back to us as consumers as a variable price, then we can put in smart devices and so forth and indeed vary our demand. But we're still going to have peak periods in the evenings, I suspect will always be peak periods. People will come home from work and do stuff. That's how it will be. Yeah, so then we still need ways of ensuring continuity of supply at that point. That's right, yeah. So it's all about trying to get an optimum mix of these things. Okay. So on a similar but slightly different note, can dispatchable renewable sources also provide ancillary services and other system security functions? I think you, you touched on this briefly at the start of the interview. Yes, they absolutely can. And conventionally, one of the things there is that big turbines that spin have a lot of sort of stored energy just in their spinning mass and they're locked onto the grid and they just naturally work to keep the frequency and the voltage where it should be. And if something terrible happens, just their pure uh, mechanical inertia keeps the system going for a few fractions of a second. So these are valuable kind of functions and they've always been available in surplus with fossil-fired thermal generation. But the fact is all of the dispatchable renewables in different ways contribute the same services. And if if we built enough dispatchable renewables to manage our demand as it varied during the day, we would have oodles of capacity to provide the ancillary services as well. Okay. Well, that's a great side effect. I just want to have, I think we have time for one last question. So I want to shift gears a little bit. You touched on this earlier, but um, we just wanted to get your opinion on what kind of policy initiatives would be effective in encouraging investment. So ensuring that we do have that plan in place to be replacing the coal fire power stations over the next 20 years. Yeah, sure. So just to be clear, Policy wasn't part of our mandate from ARENA because ARENA doesn't work on policy for government. It's a technical organisation. But for my personal view, Mm -hmm. having done this work and thought about it, I think we could do a lot worse than have a, a modified renewable energy target where what we started to do was award certificates to generators not simply by how much they've generated 
but by how much they've generated multiplied by a number that reflects the demand or the cost of electricity in the wholesale market at that instant. So if you're a renewable generator and you put out a megawatt hour in the evening when the price is high and everybody wants it, you get more certificates. Mm. If, on the other hand, you're a generator who wants to build another PV plant and generate in the middle of the day when there's already a surplus of generation, then you start not to get certificates because we've reached the point where all the demand is being met, no more is needed. So so we have a sort of renewable energy target that rewards generation when it's needed. So then we, we don't have to pick technology winners. We don't have to say, oh, you need this much storage or this much mm. something else. We let the developers adjust what they build to the price signals that they see in the market. So you're doing a market mechanism. So, Keith, could that potentially reinforce problems that we have with gaming in the system um, to optimise prices? Well, well, no, actually, because what, what it would do is by addressing dispatchable renewable generators, it would actually bring into the market at all times a lot more competition so, the, you know, the gaming comes from dominance from a few large Gentailer players who, who can sort of second-guess each other and have sufficient, uh, you know, ability with their generation to withhold it and put it back in and, and, and manipulate the price. But as soon as you get people who, you know, more, more smaller generators who've got every incentive to sell their energy and not withhold it, you'll actually get less of that kind of behaviour, I would imagine. Terrific. Well, that's all we've got time for today, Keith. Where can our listeners find out more? Oh, if they're interested in the report, Arena's website has a knowledge-sharing page, but the, 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 the main web address itself is arena.gov.au. So okay. if they go in there and they look for the knowledge tab and then search for dispatchable, they should find, find it. it. And I really uh, commend it to... alternatively via the ITP website. Thank you. And I, I really commend it to readers because it, it is, mm-hmm. even though it's such a technical topic, it's a very readable report. Yeah, and okay. the graphics are great. I mean, these graphs we talked about, they're so easy to understand. So I yeah. definitely recommend looking at those. Okay, thanks very much for your time today, Keith. Okay, thank you. We've been speaking to Keith Lovegrove from the ITP Energise Group. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.